So welcome back, everyone. Again, uh, good to be here with you this evening. And my theme for the evening, as I mentioned earlier, is Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, or we might say transforming suffering and reactivity. And again, this was a very famous passage that we find in the teachings of the Buddha, where he said very, very simply, I teach Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. And again, often, as I mentioned earlier, Dukkha has been translated by suffering, and we talk that about uh, ending suffering. But what does that mean? And in my own experience, I've seen that this can be actually uh, quite confusing. And one of the main reasons that the teaching can be confusing, and this is really, I'm talking about the core teachings that uh, we think we get from the historical Buddha, the very foundational teachings of Buddhism, what might have drawn many of us, uh, without some clarity about, particularly about the nature of dukkha, there can be a lot of confusion. And a main reason why there can be such confusion is that there are actually multiple meanings of dukkha. And so what I want to do in my talk tonight is to talk about these multiple meanings of dukkha, whether they, whether the individual meanings actually give us some sense of what the end of dukkha means. And again, I'm going to translate dukkha as reactivity uh, rather than suffering. And I'll bring out that sense of dukkha's reactivity and looking at these different meanings and further explicate it by looking at some further teachings and establish a kind of foundation for then asking if this is right at the center of the practice, right at the center, I would say, of 2,600 years of tradition, how do we clarify the meaning? What are the kinds of... Uh, dukkha or reactivity that we find in our own lives? And how do we transform such dukkha such that we can truly speak of the end of dukkha? And what does that look like? What does that mean? That's what I want to explore uh, this evening. One of the main reasons that there can be confusion is that there are at least four fundamental meanings given in the different texts by the word dukkha. And it's important to remember that the tradition of the Buddha was an oral tradition. There were only the discourses written down some 500 years after he lived. And so there are all sorts of different discourses and the Buddha will use dukkha in different ways at different times. He didn't come around and say, you know, I've talked about dukkha in all these different ways. I should systematize it. So rather what we have are a number of very important discourses, but we don't have a systematic um, sort of compilation, actually, like I'm going to give this evening, of these different senses. We don't have that in the discourses of the Buddha themselves. And so uh, it can be, it can be, and often is very confusing. 
So let me start by just going through what I'm taking to be four meanings of dukkha. And here we can go to our first slide, which I want to show uh, for everyone on the screen. And this will help us understand these four uh, different meanings of, of dukkha. Okay? Again, it's usually translated as suffering, sometimes as unsatisfactoriness, sometimes sometimes as stress. And again, I'm going to uh, recommend that we translate it as reactivity. So, uh, Christina, do we have that slide up for people now? Okay, very good. So, as you can see, uh, I'm listing four meanings of dukkha, and I'll go through them. The first is the sense of dukkha as unpleasant. And this actually in the text is called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, and this, this, this aspect of dukkha uh, appears in the text whenever the Buddha says something like this. What is dukkha? Or what is, in the text you'll find it as what is suffering. And I'm going to go through each of these and be asking if this, if this is the sense of dukkha, does it make sense to talk about the end of dukkha? And I'm going to say with the first three, it actually doesn't make sense to talk about the end of dukkha. But with the fourth, it does. That's, I'm going to say, is the most essential sense of dukkha for our practice. Okay? So the first sense of dukkha is the unpleasant. The Buddha will say, what is dukkha? And he'll say, birth is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Old age is dukkha. Uh, death is dukkha. And this, in this sense, he was actually going with what the prevailing meaning of the term was in the India, or what we now call India, of his time, where the word uh, dukkha actually uh, means, when you go back to the etymology, um, the do part of it, the first uh, two letters, du, uh, has the root meaning bad or difficult. And the last part, ka, means, actually literally means empty. And the reference historically is to an empty part of an oxen cart where the axle fits in, and if it's a bad fit, the ride is bumpy. And so this first sense of dukkha relates to that bumpy ox cart ride, something that's unpleasant, something that has its, its difficulties. And uh, so he's basically saying, we have unpleasant experiences in our lives. They happen. But we can ask the question, what would the end of dukkha mean? And is this the sense of dukkha that is important for thinking about the end of dukkha? And we can see with a moment's reflection that unpleasant experiences are simply part of life. And we will have unpleasant experiences as long as we are alive. And so, presumably, the Buddha is talking about awakening in this life. And so, although unpleasant experiences can be challenges to awakening, 
it's not that we get rid of unpleasant experiences. And indeed, the Buddha himself, particularly when he was older, had a number of unpleasant experiences. It's reported that he had a bad back and sometimes had headaches. And yet, he had come, we would presume, to the end of dukkha. So this first sense of dukkha doesn't tell us, doesn't really help us with understanding what the end of dukkha is, and hence the whole purpose of our practice. So let's go to the second sense of dukkha. This is uh, viparanama dukkha. This is, we might say, the discomfort that occurs when something pleasant, inevitably as it will, becomes unpleasant. That's what this second sense of dukkha is, that our any sense that we have of something being pleasant is not going to be stable because eventually it will turn to something unpleasant. The wonderful pumpkin pie that I may have had last Thursday, as it sits in the refrigerator for an overly long time, shifts from being pleasant to being unpleasant and maybe worse than unpleasant. And so uh, we can see this in all sorts of phenomena. The Buddha was merely saying that something being pleasant is not stable, is not long lasting necessarily. We can have good health one day and not judge good health another day and so forth. I think we we know this uh, very much. And again, we can ask the question, does this aspect of dukkha tell us much about what the end of dukkha is? And again, my answer is going to be no. This is something important to notice about life. But the fact that the something that is pleasant may become in a short time unpleasant, or could be a long time, but that it will eventually stop being pleasant, this is simply a fact of life, that's not going to end. So in that sense, this form of dukkha doesn't really end. It doesn't inform us what the purpose of the whole uh, path of awakening is. It doesn't really help there. So we can then go to a third sense of dukkha, which is given in the text. This is called sankara dukkha. It's the dukkha, we might say, of conditioned phenomena. That's what the word sankara means. And here uh, we can understand this. It's basically saying that if we think that anything in our conditioned experience will provide lasting satisfaction, we'll be fooling ourselves because nothing in that is conditioned will be will give lasting satisfaction. It may give satisfaction that lasts for a while. The pumpkin pie may give satisfaction for a while. If we eat too much of it, it won't be satisfying anymore. Now it reminds me of a, a house I once lived in was a group house and we had a, a woman who, ha, who was originally from Iraq in the house and often she would make uh, baklava on Saturday evening and so we had all you can eat baklava often on Saturday evenings and 
Um, baklava, if we were going to be technical about it, is a conditioned phenomenon. It comes into being. Anyway, uh, but uh, I would have a uh, first piece of baklava would taste very good. The second taste would taste quite good. The third piece would be okay. And by the fourth piece, baklava was no longer providing satisfaction. And by the fifth piece, it was actually providing the opposite. So this is what this particular teaching about dukkha is getting at. That, and we can think about that really in terms of anything. No one particular sight, sound, idea, taste, experience, no part of our lives that's really conditioned will last forever and give lasting satisfaction. And so uh, that's what the Buddha is pointing to with this aspect of dukkha. Again, very important to understand as part of our practice, but we can ask, does this tell us what the end of dukkha is? This form of dukkha seems to, again, much like the first two, simply be part of life. And so as long as we're living, that kind of dukkha is still going to be present. So we haven't answered the question, what does the end of dukkha mean? And so to do that, I think we have to turn to the fourth uh, understanding, which comes out in a teaching called the two arrows. And this is, I, I would say, is a way of seeing dukkha as reactivity. And I think this actually gets at the deeper meaning of dukkha and gives us a way that we can talk about the end of dukkha. So let me tell you what the teaching is of the two hours. Some of you who have uh, heard me before know that this is perhaps my favorite teaching. I think because it gets at the end of dukkha. So here's the teaching. The Buddha was once hanging out with a bunch of practitioners and he asked them a question. He said, Everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. What differentiates a mature practitioner from an immature practitioner? They didn't answer, so he answered his own question, which often happened in the teachings. And he said, as his answer, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant on a physical level. And he, in this teaching, was talking about the unpleasant on a physical level. I'm going to generalize and say that we can also think of the unpleasant occurring emotionally, interpersonally, and so forth. And he said that everyone experiences the unpleasant at times. This is like being shot by an arrow. And he called this the first arrow. And he said, Everyone at times has the unpleasant experiences. So we could talk about everyone at times has unpleasant physical experiences. We get ill, we get injured. Everyone at times has difficult, unpleasant emotional experiences of various kinds. You know, we can have difficult relationships, have anger, despair, sadness, whatever. Everyone at times has difficult um, Experiences may be related to unfairness or lack of justice, right? These are part of human experience again. And this is in a way is getting back at the, um, really, I would say at the first two meanings of dukkha. 
he called this the first arrow. And he said that a mature practitioner is no different from an immature practitioner. Both of them at times experience the first arrow. What the difference is, is that the mature practitioner, when that first arrow is felt, is able to have a skillful response to it. Whereas the immature practitioner will tend to react and shoot what the Buddha called a second arrow. And we could say at, uh, we could say at oneself or at others or both. And the immature practitioner does this, the mature practitioner does not. What does that look like? What is the shooting of the second arrow look like? I'm going to say that this second arrow is actually the meaning of dukkha that's most important for us in our practice. This is the meaning of dukkha uh, that it's possible to end. The first arrow, we might say, is the unpleasant or what's painful. The second arrow is reactivity. Sometimes we make a distinction between pain and suffering. We say pain is the first arrow and suffering is the second arrow. But a lot of times in English, we may use suffering to mean both the first arrow and the second arrow. And so there's ambiguity. So I prefer the word reactivity. So what are examples of reactivity? When I feel physical discomfort, something physically unpleasant, I may tense around that unpleasant experience. And I may tense physically, I may tense mentally or emotionally, I may blame myself, judge myself, judge someone else. I walk through the room, I stub my toe on something that had been left in the room by my partner, I blame my partner, that's shooting the second arrow. Interestingly, one of the early ways that mindfulness was brought into the medical field was in areas of chronic pain, where they found that with some kinds of chronic pain, as much as 80% of what was experienced as pain was the second arrow. The first arrow was there, was 20%, but most of the pain in some types of chronic pain is the reaction, the tensing around that pain. So if you could teach people to relax, they would still experience some pain, the 20%, but they could eliminate as much as 80%. And so John Kabat-Zinn uh, at the uh, University of Massachusetts Medical School brought in this teaching of mindfulness to help people with that 80%. I don't know if he used the teaching of the two arrows, but he was essentially teaching people how not to shoot the second arrow, which is going to be at the heart of our, our practice. So again, we can see that physically, we can see it emotionally. I am disappointed by what happened at work, and maybe I blame myself. I judge myself harshly. That's the second arrow. I judge someone else. I take it out on my kids. That's, those are forms of shooting the second arrow. Or uh, someone says something nasty to me, I say something nasty right back, that's shooting the second arrow. Um, a lot of conflicts have the structure of two people, two groups, two nations, shooting second arrows at each other. So you can see the idea here goes a long way. So I want to say that this is really the core meaning of dukkha. And we can ask, 
What does the end of dukkha mean? It means stopping shooting the second arrow. It means being able to increasingly move to, when, even when something difficult happens, be responsive rather than reactive. This, I think, is at right at the center of the teachings of the Buddha and of 2,600 years of tradition. Then the question is, of course, how do we understand this teaching in our lives and how do we practice it? That's what I want to talk about for the rest of the talk. And I'll just say that if you have any kind of uh, question or request for more clarification, you have about five minutes to send that email to livestream at spiritrock.org. And um, it would make me happy because I like to have interactive time when I teach. And so just do it to humor me if for no other reason. But hopefully the major reason is that you're um, want to learn, want to explore. Okay, so I'm talking about this core of the practice, the uh, not shooting of the second arrow as the meaning of the end of dukkha, non-reactivity. We could also talk about it using other words. We could talk about it as freedom, to be really responsive rather than reactive. There has to be a certain amount of freedom. It's also going to be connected to terms like love and loving kindness, compassion, that all of these qualities are non-reactive. And when we actually come out of non-reactivity, we have and we have some degree of maturity in that. It's going to be expressed as a freedom of responsiveness. And it's going to have these qualities of care, love, compassion, uh, and wisdom. And so this is really what we might call our North Star, I believe, in our practice. How do we become responsive rather than reactive? And I like that we can express it in ordinary English in a very simple way. I'm not saying that the practice is simple, but it's helpful to have a way of using words that has its simple aspects. So I want to give a little further explication of this through our second slide. And this is the uh, slide. Do we have that up, uh, Christina? Okay. This is the slide from the teaching of dependent origination. And this is, uh, this is a teaching that the Buddha gave right after his awakening, and, the, and that this was an understanding that actually he came to in his awakening. I'll be very brief with it. This is the middle of that teaching. And this is basically saying, this is another way of understanding in a simple way what non-reactivity means and what the end of dukkha means. The Buddha uh, said that with every experience, there's some contact. We see something, we hear something, uh, we think something, we smell something. This is contact, some contact with the senses. This leads to what uh, was called, is called Vedana, uh, usually translated as feeling tone, a sense that this is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this is just occurring. So with every experience, there is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. 
The vast majority, maybe 98, 99% or more of our experiences are relatively neutral. We pay a lot of attention to the pleasant and unpleasant ones. Now, so far, things are just happening. And it's starting with feeling tone that we can bring in mindfulness in our practice because the teaching is when we're not mindful and we have a pleasant experience, it leads us to want that pleasant experience to continue or to keep manifesting in some way. That is, would be the craving. And then eventually we grasp for it. Sometimes this can just be automatic. automatic. I'm eating my uh, first piece of baklava. The second piece is right in front of me. It's pleasant. I grab for the second piece the moment I finish. Don't even think about it. No mindfulness. That would be moving from feeling tone to grasping in a split second. And often that's what happens. We like something. We immediately grasp. We have a pleasant thought. Oh, I like, I like these Monday nights at Spirit Rock. Oh, I'm going to do this forever. Okay. Okay. Maybe something like that. Or it could manifest in, in all sorts of ways. So you see, the important thing here is that when there's the feeling tone, when there's not mindfulness, there'll be a tendency to go to um, craving or wanting and when the, with the pleasant and then the grasping. Sometimes we can slow that down. So we, when we're meditating, we might notice ourselves thinking about lunch, pleasant thoughts, some wanting some, but we haven't grasped yet because we're still meditating. So this is something we can study. Sometimes they, these come more slowly. Sometimes they come virtually automatically. And so in a parallel way, when we have something unpleasant occurring and we're not aware of it, it'll very quickly go to not wanting and uh, not, you know, not craving, not wanting, and that will lead to pushing it away. Again, can be very automatic. Someone says something, um, you know, maybe that's mean. Even before I know that it's mean, I say something nasty right back. That would be an example. So this can be happening very, very quickly. And what we do in our practice is we begin to investigate this process. So you can see that <clears throat> this model, which is also there in the Buddha, actually is covering the same territory as the teaching of the two arrows. And it's really pointing with his teaching to the two forms of reactivity. Basically, the grasping or the pushing away are the two forms of reactivity. And this can be, this can help us to orient ourselves in practice. And so what we're wanting to do is to find ways that we can avoid moving to that reactivity, to the grasping or pushing away. If we look, if we work with our mindfulness close enough, we can uh, not go to the grasping or pushing away. So another example, uh, I remember being at meetings uh, where I would, was not uh, needing to participate so much. I would have a running mindfulness log. At the beginning of the meeting, I would be saying, content, meeting going well. A little bit later, I would say, um, getting tired, sarcastic thoughts developing. But I was mindful of it. You know, you could see I was, in a way, unpleasant feeling tone, 
not wanting, you know, uh, maybe I was sarcastic, the meeting's not going well, let's get out of here. But I, I didn't act because I was mindful and writing it down. I did not say it, I did not just blurt out the sarcastic thought, which I might have done if I was not mindful. That would be another example where I'm actually interrupting the reactivity. So the main thing here is that I wanted to give this other teaching, which brings out pretty much the same uh, understanding of the two arrows here. Okay, so we can drop the slide now, uh, Christina. So I'll be uh, brief now for the rest of the talk. So what are the, some of the forms of reactivity? First of all, what are some of the forms of grasping? Uh, the Tibetans have a nice phrase. They say, when we grasp after something, it's as if things have feathers. They look prettier than they actually are. Uh, so we grasp after all sorts of things. We grasp after comfort. We may grasp after a sense of order. We may grasp after all sorts of uh, pleasant physical experiences, uh, sex, uh, all sorts of kinds of food, uh, other kinds of uh, pleasant things. Again, um, very important to see the issue is not that pleasant things are the problem. It's the grasping. That's the problem. It's the reactivity. The pleasant or the unpleasant is just part of life. I was once working with a, uh, a group and I told them there's nothing at all wrong with pleasant experiences. We could just sit here and have chocolate the whole evening and be mindful and there'd be no necessarily, not necessarily a problem with that. And so they said, let's do that next time. And we did. And we had chocolate the whole evening and we studied the teaching of the two arrows using chocolate as an important support. And so uh, noticing when there's grasping. So this is something we can do, especially with meals. When is When does the pleasant turn into the grasping? When does the experience of the pleasant or the unpleasant turn into reactivity? I do this also, I study this also when I go to the dentist and I'm just being with sensations and then I notice one of those uh, foot-long needles coming towards my mouth. Have you experienced those? And I notice my mind starting to a little reactivity develop and I say, just be with the raw experience, just be with the unpleasant, right? Could be the unpleasant thought and see if you can actually uh, not go to the reactivity. So very interesting to practice. In a sense, I'm giving some suggestions of practice. So we can have all sorts of ways that we uh, grasp after something. We can grasp after our own self-image. We can grasp after, uh, you know, being a certain person, grasp after our spiritual sense of things and, and so forth. And then we can ask, what are some of the things that we push away? What are some of the ways that we uh, push away individually? Obviously, as with some of the examples, we tend to not like physical pain or something physically unpleasant. We often push away that. We're reactive towards uh, what's unpleasant physically. We uh, are reactive towards certain emotions, certain uh, experiences. Maybe we have anxiety or fear or 
uh, anger, difficult emotions, we become judgmental or sad. And we actually, we could think of those uh, emotions as, and mental experiences as the first arrow. And we actually make things worse by shooting a second arrow. That's what's so important to understand that the reactivity takes something unpleasant and actually can make it worse. Have you noticed that? Look at, look at your own experience when something difficult happens. I find that when I do one-on-one -on -one counseling and someone's going through a difficult stretch, the most common guidance I give is something difficult is happening. Watch your tendency to shoot the second arrow. It goes so far because as we saw with the example of uh, some types of chronic pain, a very high percentage of what we experience as unpleasant is not the first arrow, but it's the second arrow. It's the reactivity. It's the shooting. We can see that with relationships. We can see how in so many relationships, one person will become reactive at something. And then the second person, I've seen this in my own relationships, I become reactive at my partner's reactivity. My partner then becomes reactive at my reactivity and we're off to the proverbial races. Is this familiar? <laughs> right? So this is, uh, you know, this kind of lets us know that when I talk about shooting the second arrow, sh shooting the second arrow is shorthand for shooting the fifth, tenth, and two thousandth, and uh, twenty-one thousandth arrow. Right? That's sometimes what, what occurs. And what's interesting is that we can also see this occurring socially. It occurs individually. We can also see this occurring socially, that so many uh, social conflicts and roots of social conflicts are about grasping and about pushing away. You know, or about in some way shooting the second arrow more collectively. And so we can see how, in a sense, uh, reactivity can get institutionalized. That, uh, that the wanting and the grasping can be a significant part, as it is for us, of our whole economic system. In a sense, we can have greed, which is a kind of continual grasping. We can have that institutionalized. We could think of racism as a kind of institutionalized pushing away. It gets institutionalized, it gets brought into the culture, and uh, it's almost taken to be just the way things are, taken to be just the norm. And we don't actually see often the origins of how these things started. You know, if you look, for example, uh, I've been uh, studying at times in the last few months the history of how uh, whiteness and race developed in the United States. And we actually look at it, it actually came out of uh, a kind of institutionalization of both hatred and greed. Because when you look to actually very interesting, you look to Virginia, Maryland in the 17th century, and there were people who were called slaves who were living alongside indentured servants. And in some ways, their lives were not all that different. There were actually way more indentured servants. There doesn't seem to have been a lot of negativity towards each other. There was a fair amount of intermarriage. 
And this was going on and people could stop being slaves. They could become free, uh, gain property, indentured servants. Um, again, we're under many of the same legal conditions as the slaves. They connected together and they also engaged in rebellions. They joined together in several rebellions in Virginia. It was called Bacon's Rebellion, the main one. And they were actually working together. They saw their main opponent as the ruling elites, not as each other. After Bacon's Rebellion, this, you can look this up in history, the ruling elites said, more or less, we will have a new strategy. We will set people against each other and we will call the group that we used to call English, we will call them whites. Whiteness does not occur until after Bacon's Rebellion. I and mean, there's actually documentation of the choice to um, use the term white as part of a divide and conquer strategy coming out of both greed and a kind of fomentation of hatred, which then, of course, got a lot stronger. It got institutionalized through legislation and so forth. Anyway, that, that's an example of how we can have uh, grasping and pushing away can uh, structure our institutions. It's very powerful, you know, and for me, that history has been very important. And of course, that whole way of institutionalizing, uh, in this case, uh, grasping and pushing away is very much with us now. And we can see if you look carefully, or actually it's not hard to see, you can see that same divide and conquer strategy now. You know, it's very much there with uh, many of the presidents, starting with Nixon, talking about law and order, talking about welfare queens and so forth. That's uh, a divide and conquer strategy, sometimes called dog whistling, right? And it's very evident with the current president. Okay, so that's that gives you a sense of how um, the reactivity can be something on an individual level, but it can also be something that's there on a collective level. So how do we practice with all of this? I'm gonna just give a brief outline. I'm not gonna be able to be uh, comprehensive, but I'm gonna talk briefly about eight ways of practicing with reactivity. And I'll mention uh, all of them, and then I'll go into depth on a few of them. So here are the eight. First, number one, I'm sorry, I don't have a slide for this. Number one, assess the level of reactivity. Know whether it's workable or whether it's too much. Secondly, cultivate non-reactivity through mindfulness, loving kindness, and so forth. Third, be mindful of reactivity and investigate it. See what the nature of reactivity is. Number four, Use your wisdom, understand, as in thinking about the two arrows teaching or the teaching of contact to grasping, reflect on the nature of reactivity. Number five, do heart practices like loving kindness or compassion that help you keep balance as you go into difficult territory. Number six, and um, I'm gonna just work, I think, with the first four, uh, four or five. Number six, do psychological work when you have, uh, uh, when you notice very old patterns of reactivity. 
And then the next one, work in different ways, both internally and collectively, with the uh, patterns of reactivity that are manifest socially in our social conditioning, in our institutions. And then the last one is learn how to be non-reactive in interpersonal and social situations through skillful speech, skillful working with conflict. So that could be the curriculum for the next six months, right? Could be a very good one. But that, would, that I think is, all of this is right at the center of our work. So, okay, so I'll go through those briefly, then we'll see if there are any uh, questions or requests for elaboration. Uh, do we have some, Christina, that have come in? Very good. Okay, we were successful. Good. Okay, then I'll be, I'll be on the brief side. If, if there weren't any, I would uh, talk a little longer. I wouldn't drag it on, but I'd talk a little longer. Okay, so first, very crucial for working with uh, anything that it, where there's reactivity, really both forms, very crucial to assess the level of reactivity and know whether it's workable. I use a scale of one to 10 and we wanna know whether it's in the workable range. So if we say it's at a nine or a 10, we may not be able to be mindful of the reactivity. I may be so angry that I'm just livid and I can't be mindful, my body is trembling even maybe. And in that case, when it's not workable, when we can't be mindful, then we do whatever we can to come back to balance. So maybe we do something physical, we talk with a friend, we take a walk, we could, if we are good at it, do practices like loving kindness, which in the tradition is understood as an antidote to fear when, we, when we're very good at it, okay? So that's number one. Assess the level of reactivity, see whether it's workable. Number two, cultivate non-reactivity. This is something we do on an ongoing basis. Keep with a regular practice of mindfulness, uh, loving kindness, being present. And this is something which is really, we might say, building a resource so that when we need to work with reactivity, the resource will be there. If we're not practicing mindfulness and developing these other tools, we can't, when we're reactive, suddenly say, okay, let me be mindful. It typically won't be strong enough. So the second way to practice is to uh, cultivate the, uh, some of these qualities which we'll use uh, later. Mindfulness, loving kindness, different forms of what we might call non-reactivity. Sense of being present in a non-reactive way. Okay, the third I'll talk more about. This is to be mindful of reactivity. It's actually to study reactivity. One of the ways that we work with and transform reactivity, both the form of grasping and the form of pushing away, is that we um, develop mindfulness and we actually investigate closely our own patterns. This is a crucial part of practice, that we actually study the ways that we are reactive. We study the ways we lose it, in other words. Christine, I don't know if we put this into our promotional literature at Spirit Rock. My sense is that in the promotional literature of most meditation centers, we say, come to Spirit Rock. Learn to be mindful, loving, aware. We don't say, 
come to Spirit Rock and study your the top 10 bad habits that you have. Right? Do we say that? I don't think so. Study your main neurotic patterns. Oh, okay. Um, but actually, it's a very important part of practice. In fact, I would say um, when we're beginning, especially for me, probably the first years were certainly balanced between sometimes I would go into beautiful states and sometimes I deal with my stuff. And what I'm saying is it's a big part of practice to deal with one's stuff. Stuff is another way to talk about shooting the second arrow. <laughs> okay. And so that is uh, really crucial. So we may have to shift our perspective. I know that when I first started doing meditation, I thought I'm here for the bliss. I'm here for the understanding. I thought when they talked about suffering, it was for other people. Not for me. It didn't take long before that attitude, as it were, got brought to earth and shifted. But that's what I thought originally. You may think that. Um, Okay, I want to say more about that. <laughs> okay, so how, how can we be mindful of reactivity? Again, we've assessed the level of reactivity. We know it's somewhat workable. And then we uh, can try to be mindful of, let's say, anger. We can actually be with anger. What is it like? What does it feel like? What's it like in the body? What's it look like? What's the storyline right now? This is the quality that we sometimes call investigation. We use questions a little bit. Okay, let me feel what's this anger like in the body? Okay, and we mostly we're just being present, but we can make a few notes. Oh, kind of like fire, some fire in my chest. Okay. okay, actually I feel just a little nauseous. It's something that's very strong in my body. Anyway, we can feel what it's like in the body. Notice the emotions, notice how it changes. Notice uh, what the narratives are, what the thoughts are. We can study uh, forms in, of reactivity in which we're pushing away, like anger. We can study um, types of uh, reactivity where we're wanting or grasping. Uh, I once co-led with my colleague and friend Diana Winston a five-week class called Greed Management. And we studied greed. We were mindful of greed for five weeks. We had our final exam for the course was uh, doing walking meditation in a newly opened bed, bath and beyond and noticing what comes up in the mind when you walk by all these products. You know, I discovered products that I did not even know existed for needs that I didn't even know existed. It was quite something, but it was very interesting to to study greed. I mean, it was amazing to study it together for five weeks. We found that greed had these very interesting qualities that I didn't know so clearly before we studied. I should say for, you know, before I go further, that we had very, very low turnout for the class. We had two teachers and we had five students. That's okay, but it didn't matter for us. We wanted to do it. We were enthusiastic, as were the five students. And so anyway, and so we found out that greed, when we look carefully at it, was very impulsive. It was almost like greed comes up. It's very hard to do otherwise. It almost immediately leads to that grasping, to that action. 
Um, it was when we looked at the, how the mind worked, it was very self-centered, right? Other people's needs did not matter when I was greedy. You know, other people's uh, needs, their interest, even their existence hardly mattered. And think of that when you think of greed as it manifests in institutions, right? Um, another uh, aspect of greed that we found was that when I was really consumed by greed, I had no sense of consequences. Interesting, right? Again, has uh, you know social implications when you look to when greed is strong in a society, right? And and so we found that uh, we found that to be the case. So we can investigate. That's the third uh, way to practice with reactivity: investigate, study it, see what it's like. You can really learn things. And it helps a lot for actually uh, not being so reactive, you know, that we bring, bring mindfulness to reactivity. We're at the mindfulness mind. We say mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. Mindfulness of anger is not angry. Very interesting. The fourth way to practice is to remember the teaching that can encourage us. Think of the teaching of the two arrows. Think of that teaching about the movement from conduct, uh, contact, I should say, to grasping or pushing away. That can help us sometimes not to be as impulsive. And then the other ones I won't mention so much, but the heart practices help us to stay balanced as we go into difficult territory. Reactivity is difficult. Uh, sometimes we want to do psychological work when we notice very chronic old patterns. We can do that with a, a mentor or a teacher, sometimes on our own. We can work with the social conditioning, such as I mentioned, that uh, has us being reactive uh, because of that conditioning. Or we can also try to change the um, institutions that have reactivity, whether they're close to home or more or more general. And um, we can also learn to develop non-reactive responses in our language, in our speech, in our communication. And um, let me finish just with one comment. Maybe I can talk more about this a little, you know, in the uh, discussion time. A major complication about reactivity is that we can be reactive about something that actually um, it's important to notice. I can be notice social injustice and become very reactive about the social injustice. Someone doesn't keep an agreement with me. It's important for me to know that that person hasn't kept the agreement, maybe talk to the person, but I can also be reactive about it. And I can, in a sense, very possibly mess up the situation. And what that points to, and again, I'll be very, very brief here, is that what we're actually looking for is not simply to get rid of the reactivity. Sometimes we need to transform the reactivity so that we preserve what we might call the discernment or the intelligence or the moral point or the important point that is there with the reactivity. Because what happens Let's say I have what I call a discernment about injustice, but I become really reactive about it. It's actually not going to probably help very much. What I need to do is to do inner work 
to like sometimes outer work to disentangle the insight into injustice from the reactivity. I would say that is at the heart of what, for example, people like Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day did in the traditions of nonviolence. Nonviolence is very much a way of addressing something that's wrong in a situation, but doing it non-reactively. Not easy. There's a whole, again, we could take a whole uh, six months just to explore that one. So I just want to acknowledge that. And I think I want to finish now with, um, uh, maybe I'll just finish with, with that and, and let's open things up. I had a poem, but I'll, maybe I'll read it at the end if we have time. Okay, so let's go to the questions and see how much time they take. Okay, please, Christina. Thank you, Donald. Um, we're probably not going to be able to get to all of the questions. Okay. Everyone responded uh, very generously to your request. Oh, that's great. <laughs> the first question, how do you work with grief over the end of a relationship without shooting a second arrow? Yeah, great question. Um, and I'll be on the brief side so we can have uh, a number of questions asked. It would be to use some of the uh, some of the tools I mentioned. I would say it would be a combination, especially of mindfulness, wisdom, and heart practices. We want to hold the grief, first of all, with some compassion, and we could uh, actually be then mindful. If we know the relationship has ended, we can actually stay with the grief. And I'll, I'll give an example. I had a very strong experience of grief about a little over, well, almost five years ago, my mother died and it was somewhat unexpected. I was scheduled to be on a retreat, it turned out, for four weeks as a retreatant. Uh, it started six days after she died. So I just stayed with a lot of grief for four weeks and I practiced with it. And what I found was my own instructions that I found myself giving after some time to myself was, be with the process of grief, let it flow, notice it, notice it, how it appears, be present, be mindful, try not to obstruct it, and then see what gets in the way. And what's going to get in the way are going to be often one's reactive narratives. You know, it was my fault, you know, in the case, or in the case for me, it was I should have done this, or I should have known this. It was some kind of judging or blaming. So that's the general instruction. Be with the process, be present with it using mindfulness, hold it with heart practices, and then see what gets in the way and what obstructs that natural grief process from occurring. It's going to be the comments, the I should have done this, the blaming of the other person, all those things are going to get in the way. So that's the short response. But I think it gets to the heart. That's that's all I worked with. And that did me well over about four weeks of being with the grieving process. Yeah. Also, I enjoyed watching my dreams. That was pretty interesting too. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Next question. I noticed myself fluctuating between seeing an end to dukkha and accepting dukkha. How can I remain in acceptance without complacency or defeat? And how can I see an end to dukkha without turning this pursuit into an avoidance. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, subtle questions, right? Very, very interesting. One of the problems with English is that acceptance can mean 
uh, at least two things. Sometimes it means I accept that this is real, that this is happening, and that's a good thing. So in the case of dukkha or uh, reactivity, uh, I can be mindful of reactivity. In that sense, I accept that it's real. Uh, another sense of acceptance can mean that this is okay, it's good, it should continue. And that's not so helpful. So we want to make sure that when we talk about accepting dukkha, that we're talking about it in the first sense, that this is real, it's happening, we're not trying to deny it. And then the... Uh, um, and we can also, and then we can be with it and study it. And actually being mindful of dukkha is one way to transform it and end it. Because we take it that when we're mindful, there's a natural wisdom that applies. And we see that reactivity, when we're caught in it, is um, not helpful. It's uh, quite painful. So did I get at all the aspects of that, do you think, Christina? And how can I see an end to dukkha without turning this pursuit into an avoidance? Into avoidance. Well, we want to really um, be willing to open to the reactivity. That's the key. We want to be willing, and we want to see if we are in any way denying the reactivity or trying to get rid of it or prematurely trying to get rid of it. We Sometimes we just have to stay with it. I wish I could say it differently, but sometimes the dukkha just stays for a while. You know, I had one retreat where I was angry and reactive. I would have liked it not to be there. It was there for 10 days in a row for different reasons. I had to hang out with it. So we want to watch the tendencies to deny or suppress. Okay. Maybe time for one more. Yes. I want to say I really appreciate you saying that we never advertise anything as come and check out your neurosis. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that. Okay. Okay. The last question. How do you know when meditation is actually beginning to get results in our daily lives? Does a transformation or revelation occur all at once? Do you realize you're enlightened suddenly one time after meditating? How long does it usually take a person to know they are doing it correctly and when they actually see results or see their inner self? How does the process work? Yeah, uh, great question. And uh, first of all, in terms of knowing whether you're doing it right, at least in the beginning part of practice, it's important to work with a teacher and, and to be able to ask questions. And if not a teacher, then someone who is uh, more experienced than oneself in terms of knowing, am I doing it right? But actually, we typically get results almost immediately, very quickly. They, um, they can be more modest results. But for example, when we're, you know, for me, I'll give examples from my own experience. When I was first practicing, well, what you basically do is we're mindful of our experience. And so we in many cases, maybe most cases, start seeing things about ourselves that we weren't aware of. That happened to me, certainly. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't some great transformative insight, but I noticed very quickly that my mind was planning a lot, that I was a planner. I come from a planning family. My sister has a master's degree in planning, right? And, uh, you know, I noticed I was planning a lot. I got that insight almost immediately. It was helpful. 
You know, I got to actually notice that insight over and over again for quite some time. Um, because so there can be insight there, or maybe if you, you know, um, you can notice, you know, just in noticing, sometimes we can, for example, um, be very, very judgmental. And we're mindful, we notice ourselves judgmental. And then we say, okay, what's it feel like in the body? And we notice, oh, I'm angry. And maybe previously, we would have just stayed being judgmental all the time, and not even realized I'm angry. And so that would be that's the kind of result which we have uh, pretty soon in our practice. And when we have, you know, kind of small results, modest results like that over and over again, it builds. And so we can see results like that. Or for me doing that mindfulness log at the meeting, just to uh, do that and notice, oh, sarcastic thought developing. That was helpful, right? That was a result. It saved me in a way from maybe just blurting out my sarcastic thought. That's a result. These are This is what we can look for that can really happen uh, actually pretty soon in our practice. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I hope that's helpful, right? And how many other questions? I think we have time to finish now, right? But uh, how many other questions were there? You got about 12 total. Oh, my gosh. So thank oh. you to everyone. Gosh, if I had known that, I might have uh, not talked so long. But uh, if we were at my house, we could have kept going with the other 12. But I think I want to honor, honor the time. And uh, maybe just invite people as we're closing. We'll close with two things. First is... Just see if there was something that was uh, helpful from tonight that you want to take with you. And see if there is an intention coming out of the evening. This is just for yourself. And then secondly, we'll end in a traditional way with what's called the dedication of merit, a very traditional. Some people like to put their hands together. You don't have to do that. And here we recognize that we're practicing very much for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. And we ask that the benefits of our evening together, if that was an evening for you or the period of time together, that the benefits of this time be there for us, be there for those in our own lives, but also go beyond the circles of our own lives, the immediate circles, and move towards other beings. So we ask that the benefits of our evening be there for us, for those in our own circles, and then increasingly be with all beings, be there for all beings. So as we connect with that sense of offering the benefit for all beings, we ask, may the evening be of benefit for all beings. And we remember that this includes us.
So we'll close with that wish for the benefit for all beings, which includes us. So thank you very kindly for your attention and for your wonderful questions, many of which I still would like to see. Maybe you can send those to me, Christina. That would be great. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, look, I'll look at them. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I can even answer them. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much. And may, may your practice continue well. And may we, may we, may we uh, meet again soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.